Hello and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, and we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Paul Kupiak, who's a senior fellow with us at AEI, where he studies systemic risk and the management and regulation of banks and financial markets. He also follows the work of financial regulators like the Fed and examines the impact of financial regulations on the economy. Before joining us here at AEI, he was an associate director of research at the FDIC. He also previously worked at the IMF, Freddie Mac, JP Morgan, and the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. Thanks for joining us on Banter. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to have Paul because this is a crucial time in our economy. You know, the inflation is higher than it's been in 40 or 50 years. Fed is raising interest rates. They're the center of the news. How do you think they're doing? I would say it's not so well. (laughs) It doesn't look so good so far. No, uh, they've, um, for the last decade, they've been unable to get the inflation rate up to their 2% target. And then all of a sudden it rises way above their 2% target and they miss that. They can't, they miss their forecast. They kept saying it was going to come back and it's transitory. And now they're way behind the ball at, you know, 9.4% in inflation. So it, you can't give them a very good report card for the last so many years. So Alan Blinder, uh, who happened to be my economics professor in college and writes for the Wall Street Journal and is a, a man of the left for sure and a softy on these issues. You're, are you a hard money man? Uh, maybe. I, I just got to say, I worked for Alan Blinder one summer when I was in graduate school. <laughs> I ran the Fed's macro model for him and Albert Ando. And so... Uh, nice guy. Yeah, I like Lovely him. Lovely man. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I worked, worked with him when I was at the Fed. And so, you know, Alan's a very highly respected economist, but he's he's also very political. And uh, his, his advice, I think, is, uh, you know, s- slow down on the interest rate rises. We don't want to tank the economy before the, you know, the midterms in the fall, I think. I think that's his advice. Ooh, Paul, that's <laughs> even more political than I was going to say. First of all, he's a great fan of basketball. He's a basketball fan. I didn't know that. And I respect that a lot. He was a great fan of the, the college team that I was associated with. And on top of that, his main lecture that every freshman who took Economics 101 had to, if they couldn't get this, then they were really not too smart, Uh is that the balances between inflation and unemployment, yeah, that's, those are the two charges of the Fed, right? Well, the Fed has really four missions now. There's two, there's two that are in the Humphrey Hawkins bill. It's, it's uh, price stability and maximum employment. The Fed- Inflation and unemployment, that's what I just correct. said. Correct. Okay, I got the those Fed, two the right. Fed is The Fed is also a regulator. In yeah. fact, it's, it regulates bank holding companies and member member banks. And it also has essentially another mission given in the Dodd-Frank Act of financial stability. So the Fed is the primary regulatory agency responsible for making sure the financial system doesn't blow up. I mean, they're the only ones that can lend in special circumstances, lender of last resort. We've seen it in the last two crises. They open up all kinds of different lending schemes. So they really kind of have four different charges. Uh, two of them in law in the Humphrey Hawkins bill, one assigned by Dodd-Frank, and then uh, a regulatory function that goes way back to Bank Holding Company Act and and um, the founding. That's good. That's very helpful. But but again, what Professor Blinder always said is the balance between unemployment and inflation. And he used to say students at, at Princeton should know that unemployment is a more important thing to fight than inflation. Where are you on that? It's interesting. If you go back through the history of the Fed and you read different uh, 
transcripts from the FOMC, the, the Fed has varied on this over time. Uh, at one point, you know, in the 70s and the great inflation, they weren't so weren't so focused on bringing down inflation. That kind of they kind of dropped the ball on that big time, as as you might recall. And it took Paul Volcker to come in and, and sort of turn that around. And after the Volcker years, the the Fed and the Fed staff was was pretty much focused on their first their first job was price stability, and and they hadn't adopted an inflation target. And and what people chairman like Alan Greenspan said is, you know, what should inflation be? Well, it should be low enough that nobody pays attention to it. Yes. And and that was the mantra in the Fed for the 90s into the 2000s. And it really was more Bernanke and Yellen and, and even more Yellen that brought, I think, the focus more around to you can run the economy much, much hotter. You don't have to worry about inflation as much. You look at long-term inflation expectations. If they're anchored, you're okay. We can let unemployment fall. So there, there's been a, a regime shift over time in what is most important and not important. So, I mean, I think I, I worked at the Fed under Alan Greenspan, and in my time there, the, the mantra was you, you worried about controlling price. You get, get, get prices stable, get inflation down so it, it's not an issue in any contracts or people don't worry about it. Workers aren't obsessed with cost of living increases and all that kind of stuff, and the rest will take care of itself. It was price stability was a condition maximum employment. I see. So uh, they and weren't I think, a they weren't a trade off. They were you yeah, won you, first. You needed to have price stability, and then after that, uh, you know that would that would bring about maximal employment. That that inflation was really a curse when it came to employment and productivity. It it, it you just couldn't have inflation and full employment. So I want to come back to financial market stability part because that is an interesting thing that's happened at the Fed is how much they use. Their powers there to soften crashes and crisis moments, but I'll get to that in a minute. What I what I was interested in was haven't you written recently about a movement in Congress to even further expand the Fed's charter into things like climate, uh, racial equity? Give us your take on that sort of thing. Yeah, there's there's a n- number of competing legislative uh, initiatives. legislative initiatives and administrative initiatives going on right now. The Biden administration basically directed all of government to worry about climate change, including the financial regulators and the FSOC. And the FSOC basically followed their instructions and 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 wrote a report that said climate change uh, posed grave dangers to the financial system. Systemic systemic. Tell us again what FSOC is. FSOC is the Financial Stability Oversight Council. It was created by the Dodd Frank Act, and it's it's basically. A, a collection of regulators. It's the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, FDIC OCC, uh, the so FHA. The Federal Reserve is a member of the FSOC. Yeah, and it's the biggest, biggest. Player. But well, the Secretary of Treasury is the biggest player. But <laughs> okay. the Federal Reserve is the the premier agency, I would say. Although the other the other regulatory agencies would probably not like me, you know, saying that or wouldn't agree with me. But the Fed is the most important. Of the players. So the Biden administration said, you must focus on this, and therefore, does that mean the Federal Reserve now is going to focus on climate change and racial equity? And- the, the FSOC met, wrote a report, and said, uh, climate change is separate from, from equity. Okay. Uh, or the, Not treated the same it, way. It, they, bring up, they bring up equity and climate change legislation, too, but, but the climate change is a separate initiative from the equity-type arguments, and the FSOC said that the financial aid, regulatory agencies, if they identify something as a systemic risk, climate change, then the then the financial regulatory agencies that are members of FSOC have to do things to mitigate the risk. And so, the preferred the preferred uh, 
process here is what what's going to be called stress testing. They want to stress test the financial institutions for climate change risk. And what's a climate what would be a climate change stress test? Well, the Fed would create some scenario in the future, some hypothetical scenario in the future. And, it, and for climate change, it would rely on something uh, they call transitional risk. And what's a transitional risk? Well, something happens in the world that um, causes Congress either to pass some legislation that outlaws greenhouse gas emitting activities, you know, at stroke of a pen, or consumers get totally freaked out and don't drive their cars anymore because they think the climate's you know, some, there's some change in the future that causes a dramatic change in the demand for greenhouse gas emitting activities. And so if that were to happen, these firms wouldn't be able to pay their bills or their debts back. And the, the, the type of analysis, well, what kind of losses would banks take in this elevated uh, climate change risk scenario? And then the banks would have to hold capital to cover those losses, these purely hypothetical losses that occur sometime in the future. And um, there could be other things like uh, the SEC and the and the um, the ESG related disclosures they're doing now. Um, at some point, the the regulator, the the SEC, say, could say that well, because to limit climate change risk, you you can only have uh, so so much ESG produced by the firms in your portfolio. They could put limits on things like that. And this has actually all been discussed in in actually legal journal articles that were written was written by uh, undersecretary of the treasury so graham Steele. so it, he actually outlined it two years ago in, in cornell law review this whole plan so so capital uh holding requirements on banks they uh are, the downside of them the big downside of them is that they have less capital to deploy toward lending and which happens to to make the economy go the capital requirements directly affect what a bank is willing to lend. So you might have seen J.P. Morgan's uh, earnings call last week with Jamie Dimon. I, yeah. know, I know you're a fan of Jamie yeah. Dimon. Mm-hmm. You're a fan. They both brought everyone back to the office. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm a fan. He's a good, he's a good, he's a ba- good banker. He's a good banker, one yeah. of the best. And, right. and he said uh, he was the, they just released the results of the Fed stress test, not the climate change stress test, you know, but the, the Dodd-Frank stress yes, test yes, the one, yes. recently. And and they dinged uh, J.P. Morgan for their mortgage holdings. They, they, the Fed basically made them run through some scenario where they had mortgage losses equivalent to two, the 2008 financial crisis, even though they've got no delinquencies and losses in their mortgage book. But yeah. the Fed says you've got to hold capital to cover as if we have another 2008 right. all over again. Right. And and J- and Jamie Dimon said this is just crazy. It's arbitrary and capricious. There's we would nobody should run their institution that way. Right. And the interesting thing is, um, the courts agree with Jamie Dimon. You might recall in 2014, the FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, they have the power to designate firms that are not large bank holding companies, but other financial firms as systemically important to the financial system. And yeah. so. Back in the day, they designated GE Capital, which subsequently got rid of GE Capital because of the des- they didn't want to deal with the Fed and the designation. They they um, uh, MetLife uh, and and a number of other insurance companies, and MetLife fought fought this in court. They fought the designation, and the designation by the FSOC was based on a hypothetical stress test, where the, the regulators say, well, assume all that your your life insurance policies they all run, they all cash out their life insurance policies. What would happen if they all did that? They, that's like a bank run on deposits. Yeah. And you know, they said, well, if if that happened, you wouldn't be able, to, you know, you wouldn't be able to meet your debts and other things like that, and you'd go bankrupt, and then that you'd have spillover effects to all kinds of other firms because you're a big financial firm. And MetLife said, this is crazy. 
life insurance you know holders don't don't run like that and yeah. and they took it to court and under the administrative procedures act as a violation of the administration procedures act and they won in court they the courts determined it was ar- arbitrary and capricious and and the fsoc had to back off so this the whole idea that these hypothetical stress tests uh, are somehow it, legal. Le- That's the legal, first question. Legal is, um, legal is especially, one. Especially ones it, based on hypothetical events mm-hmm. that have never happened in the past, like global warming yes, and the earth. But aren't they also bad because they hinder banks' ability to do their job? Yes. J- Jamie Dimon says we got to get rid of mortgages now. We're yeah, not going right. to hold mortgages. Yeah, we can't make any money if we've got to hold that much capital Phoebe, against you mortgages. You want to get a house? You can't get a mortgage. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's yeah. at the same time where the Fed has stopped quantitative buying mortgages, mortgage-backed securities under quantitative easing. They did that till March to yeah. keep rates low. And right now, they're cracking down on all the banks and they're going to push the banks out of, out of making mortgage loans. So, you know, they're whipsawing the housing market, right? They 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 funded housing to try to get housing to recover. We got huge housing inflation. Yeah. Now they pulled out the the subsidies by buying mortgage-backed securities and hold them on the balance sheet. And now they're cranking down on banks, saying you can't hold mortgages because yeah. you have to hold too much capital. It's kind of it's it. The Fed is allocating capital in the economy, something that the founders never, you know, imagined they would do. So let's talk about that, the, the, the Fed balance sheet and the, the financial stability. Is it not true that sometimes in the last 25 years, the, the use of these unique powers of the Fed to shore up the financial stability by flooding, I think it's flooding the economy with money, liquidity, yeah. is a, is, has worked to avoid catastrophe? Or are you, are you against that too? It has saved. It has certainly saved banks from major losses. Um, I'm not against special lending by the Fed. That's their job. Uh, I think. I think QE is another matter. When they go in and they buy treasuries, that's one thing. But when they go in and then they buy mortgage-backed securities, which fund just a certain part of the economy, they're putting their finger on the scale of where the capital in the in the economy goes. Mm-hmm. So that that generally doesn't work very well. Moreover. If you think about what the climate change regulation, the FSOC is, the FSOC's telling them to put their finger on the scale of where capital goes for all kinds of industries that the current party in power doesn't like. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it is it exactly telling them, you know, where they where the Fed's going to tell people where they can lend and where they can't lend in the private sector, and and that that's bad. State, state, right, Phoebe? State yeah. I mean, I'm curious, like, is, could you think of a hypothetical of, like, a Republican administration enacting that? I feel like if people heard about the alternative, they would understand kind I, of the implications. I, I can't imagine Republicans doing it. I mean, but, but if but they were again, to, like, what's the kind of thing that they would do that would make Democrats say, OK, this should not be something that the Fed has a, has a role well, in? Well, what would the Republicans want to put their finger on? I, it's the scale to tilt towards. Um, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, there are some probably some Republicans. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, like wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's be careful here. The Republicans were in on the use of the Fed to shore up the companies that were systemically. Dodd-Frank Act was passed, passed by the Democrats. Yeah, under but, Obama. But, but Paulson went and yeah, under Paulson Bush did, yeah. and kneeled on his knees to say, no, you're right. I mean, said, look, we're going to have a catastrophe unless we let the Fed do this. That's true. And, and, and let's just poli- name the companies that they saved. They saved all the big banks. All the big banks. Holding companies. They, they let Lehman go, right? Lehman's the one that yeah, died. Well, yeah, Paulson then, didn't like uh, <laughs> the guy that <laughs> so Although he doesn't easy, admit that. I, I'm mm. not so sure that the partisan divide here is, is both sides No, no, no. Both sides, both sides have yeah. their... But 
the Republicans have never advanced a bill for for the equity side of things to yeah, have yeah, equal yeah, outcomes. Yeah, 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 they yeah. haven't advanced one that you should should choke off capital to climate change. The Obama administration had Operation Choke Point, which wasn't even a law, where Marty Gruenberg, the chairman of the FDIC, teamed up with the Department of Justice, and they decided that banks shouldn't lend to gun shops, to, to legal pornography, to, yeah. to other kinds of crazy stuff that, that, that the Democrats didn't like. Yeah, yeah. And, and they, and well, there is a, there, in that there is a divide. There, it's Democrats called, it's are much more... Operation Choke Point. Yeah, <laughs> choke off the economy. That's right. Well, to, the, to who they don't want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they, but these were all legal activities. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was also payday lenders because yeah, payday lenders are bad, right? So you're a banker, or or someone who's involved in the banking industry. Are you worried about anything? What are you worried about? What are the risks that you are truly worried about to, to our the, economy? To the financial sector? Yeah, inflation's a big problem. I mean, it's gonna, it's not, it's not just gonna go away easily. Yeah. I mean, the Fed has relied for the longest time on this notion that inflation expect if inflation long-term inflation expectations are anchored they're in pretty good shape the things that people are convinced they're going to get it under control back to two percent then they don't they might not have to do that much they might have to not, not to cause a bad really bad recession to, to get inflation under control but the longer inflation goes on people are going to pretty they, we do not have a theory in economics about how people decide on their inflation expectations we really don't know it's just that when inflation was low and below two percent for so long people just stopped paying attention to it and said what's inflation going to yeah, be yeah. i don't know yeah. the fed says it's two percent so i guess it's two percent it's it's not i don't it doesn't bother me it bothers everybody now people are focused on it how long if inflation is nine percent and the average wage gain over the last year was four percent that's that's what workers could get okay Next year, they're going to come around and say, well, I only made back 4% of that, not, even if it stopped at 9%. I lost money last yeah, year. Yeah, I lost 5%. Prices don't come down. Once they go up 9%, they stay up 9%, right? Right. They don't, we, we've ne- we don't have deflation ever. Remember, that's a bad, bad word in the Fed's vocabulary, even though it's not necessarily clear that it totally is. Well, some totally prices is. Fall, fell. I mean, that's not but true. But the price level, the, the overall yeah. price level doesn't fall. If you yeah. look at a CPI chart, it never goes down. Yeah, yeah. It only goes one way. It only goes up. So if I got a 4% raise, not saying I did, but if I was the average yeah. worker and I got a 4% raise and inflation's 9% or maybe it's 15%, depending on who you are, because if yeah. mostly you just buy food and energy and you're not using all this other stuff. Then I'm gonna I'm gonna go back next year. My employer, if I can, if the labor market. Okay, okay, tight. okay. So yeah. you're worried about inflation. Yeah, I got it. I'm right. worried about inflation too. But the question is, um, the Fed is ra- put put it up 75 basis points. They That's say nothing. Gonna- Inflation is nine percent. Right, right. What's the real interest rate? It's negative. So you're worried they're going too slow. They're not aggressive enough. They're not going to be resolute enough. They're not going to get it under control. Yeah, well, not quickly, not very quickly. And if the longer it goes on, the more the more we're going to see people's expectations of, of of inflation get built in more and more and the more the only way you're going to stop that is to make the labor market weak and and a recession and people can't get the raises that they want i mean that that's that's the historical way that we fix these things i mean soft landings are few and far between but but let's well now okay hold on about that because jim pearson our, our friend wrote an op-ed in the wall street journal this week mm-hmm. saying that if this is a recession, it's unlike anyone we've had before. It is. It is. The numbers look strange. They do. And yeah. and one of the numbers that look strange are the labor force numbers. Yeah. So there isn't widespread unemployment. There's still a great demand for jobs. Maybe that's related to the shortage of labor. But do you think it's possible? You just said a soft landing is going to be hard to happen. But you're saying 
but wouldn't a soft landing be a slowdown in growth or negative growth that doesn't lead to widespread unemployment? Is that possible? I mean, I guess in theory it's possible. Right? I mean, it's possible right now that we've had two quarters of negative growth. Yes. And, and we have 9% inflation. <laughs> and we have 3% unemployment. Uh, 3.4 or something, <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. But uh, we, we do. Um, there's also diverging divergent trends in the business side of things or the household side of things in the labor market. One yeah. of one of the reports says we actually didn't get that many much job growth and it's turning. The other yeah, one yeah. says that. So you've read so you've got to read the tea leaves. One Three of four. the lines about yeah. inflation that is worth repeating is is that when inflation is high, everybody's hurt. Yeah. When unemployment is high, only the unemployed, unemployed are hurt. Yeah. Well maybe that's true. I mean I'm not I'm not saying inflation is not important and it's not a bad problem. I just am curious about the labor market. I find it fascinating. I'm not a labor economist, but the labor the labor market is very strange, acting strange. A lot of people have left it. Are they going to come back in? And you think you think with high inflation they'd have to come back in, but but they're not yet. So the participation rate's pretty low, sixty percent, something like that. Sixty one. Sixty two. Yeah. yeah. So um, what are you happy about? I'm an economist. I'm not supposed to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an observer. I try to, I try to see what's going on and put it in place and put it in a historical context. And you know, it's like Sesame Street. One of these things is like the other. You know, which box does it go into? Yes, Paul, and you do that very well. And I read your stuff all the time. But that the, I mean, you've now raised a good sort of AI question. So, where do you, uh, you know, we in in the world of these economists who are observing the economy yeah. with a particular focus on the banking industry or or more generally. We've talked about Alan Blinder, there's Dr. Strain, there's Jason Furman, there's Paul Krugman. Where do you see, who do you like, where do you fit in that, in, that, in that world? I mean, how do you characterize yourself in relation to other observers of the economy? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I'm a fiscal conservative. I, I believe in simple rules and regulation, things that you can tell that people are either following and aren't following. I don't. I'm I'm against the discretion of the administrative state that we've had. I I don't think that's healthy because that leads to big shifts from administration to administration, which is not good for business and it's not good for growth. How can you plan on what's going to happen five years down the road if you have a new administration and they entirely change it? So fossil fuels are out for these four years. You know, next time maybe fossil fuels are the name of the game and we're going to subsidize all the fossil fuels because we, you know, have to businesses went out that that doesn't work very well i'm I'm, I'm very disappointed that congress doesn't take more responsibility and stand up and a lot of times i'm writing things trying to explain things to congress Mm -hmm. (laughs) as far as i can tell you know they they're willing to cede their authority in in all kinds of occasions which i find disturbing i think that's something that's become much clearer to me in the last nine years that i've worked here because before that i did my job at a regulatory agency or whatever i didn't pay a whole lot of attention to that but now where i try to write back and forth on policy issues that that kind of thing bothers me but yeah i don't know is that helpful we've been talking a lot about state on our last couple of episodes i'm curious if you think that part of what the biden administration has tasked the fed with whether it's the equity goals climate change etc do you read that as kind of lacking the political will to get movement on those things in Congress and so then kind of punting it to institutions like the Fed that shouldn't be focused on those yeah, things? Yeah, these are supposed to be independent agencies. They're not supposed to be under the control of the executive branch. They're supposed to have a clear charter that Congress laid out that they have duties that were helpful to the economy, making sure certain things don't get out of control, but they're they're not supposed to be putting their finger on 
the scale and not letting uh, bank give loans to energy companies uh, or, you know, the wrong kind of energy company. Mm-hmm. The, the, that was never envisioned as their role. And and now it is with these actions, these uh, executive actions or the, the new laws that we haven't yet talked about, about generating equal outcomes for mm-hmm. whatever your right. favorite ethnic and political group is or ethnicity. These, these things, they were in, supposed to be independent agencies that had a clear duty and they should have stuck to their business, right? And the people would trust them and you would trust regulation. And now they've all become political, which oh. is which is a bad thing. Bad thing. Okay, so let's talk about one innovation in the financial world that you write about occasionally. And, and I this is a hard one to get into because once we get down this road, we may never get out. <laughs> And that is, you know, uh, digital currency and, and crypto. So just give us the short, what is good about that? What, what, what could happen in this innovation that you look forward to? The positive innovation, perhaps, a new type of payment system that uses some kind of public ledger where you can um, see all the transactions, clear and settle transactions over the internet without necessarily using the intermediary of, of a bank or something like that. That that has promise, and it has promise for a few reasons, but it, it's way overhyped for a lot of reasons. The promise might be that if you're going to use a financial institution to transfer money from one place to another or, or value, there needs to be another financial institution over there, and they're, they're going to charge for this transaction. Everybody charges to clear and settle money, as do people who move Bitcoin. Miners who move Bitcoin. They don't do it because they're altruistic and they like Nakatomi or whatever his name is. They do it because they make a lot of money mining Bitcoin. And they, they build these massive complexes and invest all kinds of money because they make money mining Bitcoin. So this notion that somehow it's free to transact on these blockchains is it, it's nonsense. It's, not, it's very expensive. The Bitcoin blockchain, which is the payment system to transfer Bitcoin, uses the, the equivalent of the power usage of Argentina, the whole country of Argentina. That's how much it cost for Bitcoin to operate. Now, what does Bitcoin do for the world? Is it, is it really worth the energy consumption of Argentina? In my opinion, no. But the breakthrough is this way to transact and, and, know, and have a, you're transacting with somebody who you don't know, a very far away from you maybe perhaps, and somehow you can reliably get them a payment using your cell phone, Without the friction or without the cost. Without going to your bank or without paying a wire fee. So So there's potential there. There's potential there. More frictionless payments through this new ledger. You could could have the ability to reach people easier without as many intermediaries. But but these systems are not free to run. And... Well, I, well, let me just ask you a question okay. about that. Isn't one of the potential benefits, it kind of goes to, a cons- you are a former regulator. I am. Isn't it a way for people to avoid... Regulation. Regulation, appropriate regulation of the banking industry? Yes. There, there are many different types of animals in this crypto world, okay? Maybe it would be helpful to think about it a little bit. There's private, so-called private stable coins, and a, and a private stable coin... It could be a firm or it could just be a software program. There, there's different kinds of stable coins. But for example, Facebook, Diem, when they wanted to have a stable coin, they, wanted, they, they originally wanted to have one that was in a multi-currency stable coin. But let's talk about a dollar stable coin. So somebody like Facebook, who's, who's no longer doing it, they got out of the business, but they would set up a firm that would take your dollars and they would issue a private stable coin that you could use and trade on the network that they managed. This is the payment system network that they managed. And to do that, you would have to 
pay them something to transfer this, but it would be some kind of ledger system where you could basically send one of these DM tokens to anybody who had a cell phone or an account or a okay. wallet. Okay. So that that's where it first came out. They now there's two 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 ways you can do. There's more than two ways, but there's two basic splits for stable coins. One keeps a reserve. So if you give them a dollar, they're supposed to buy assets worth a dollar and back your stable coin with those assets, like a mutual fund mm-hmm. or a bank would. Okay. And and then the question is, is it redeemable or not? Can you can you turn your coin in and get a dollar back? And most many of these aren't redeemable, or they're only redeemable with big fees involved, or there could be minimum minimum piece. They're, once they have your dollar, they a lot some of them have your dollar. You're not getting it back. You can you can trade that coin mm-hmm. for something else if somebody's willing to take it, but it, it, it's it's not transferable back to fiat U.S. dollar money necessarily. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Some of them involve fees. Now some of them take that dollar, you don't know where it goes, and they they create a stable coin by what they call an algorithm. So they 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 might buy other cryptocurrencies in some kind of dynamic hedging process like we used to do in banking way back when. You're, you're an old banker. Trading derivative trading. I didn't do that. But we didn't, you, have, you know, you, we didn't you, allow that in our you, bank. You trade this and that and you, and you keep We a, just did simple loans to yeah. good business you people. You didn't allow that. Old school banker. Until <laughs> Mr. Mr. Potter came along. That's right. That's right. But, so you, you have this algorithm that buys other cryptocurrencies and tries to maintain the dollar, but that, that kind of blew up on, on coins in May. There's one of them that was an algorithmic stable coin. So those were two kinds of things. Then potentially competing uh, coin is, is a central bank digital currency. Mm. Okay. Okay. So central, so, so if you have a, a private digital currency that mirrors the dollar, supposedly it's worth a dollar and you can trade it over that private stable coins network. And presumably you could buy things that are worth a dollar with it or multiple. Yeah. So the cent- a central bank digital currency, the central bank, we already have digital currency in America. Bank deposits are digital. They're digital currency, yeah. but they're digital currency issued by the bank. Okay. So they're insured up to $250,000, but if by the FDIC, but if the bank should fail and you have more than $250,000 in account, conceivably you might not get it all back. In most cases you would because they sell the de- all the deposits to another institution yeah. and, you, and, and, and you get all of it. So it's, it's secure. Okay. Is a stable coin insured, a private stable coin? No, it's not. An, if it fails, are you going to get your money back? Who knows? Probably, maybe, maybe not. There's all kinds of bankruptcy laws. Okay. There's cases right, right now. There's examples of longstanding practice that, that have protected depositors that this, this world doesn't have. Stablecoin world doesn't have, and it, it doesn't want them either. Because yeah. if it if it were to acquire those, it would get all the regulations that and go the along with it, yeah. and the costs. Deposit insurance isn't free; yeah, banks have to pay for right. it. Right, got it. Then there's the, so then there's another kind of digital currency that we have right now in the U.S., and it's issued by the Federal Reserve, and okay. and their deposits at the Federal Reserve, and those are completely risk free. Why? Okay. Because the Fed can print more money. If you right. want to take all your deposits out, even if the Fed's bankrupt, it can print more money. Yeah, right. So those are so completely. that's a good thing. You like uh, central bank digital currency? No, I don't want the central bank. Digital <laughs> no, you don't. I was explaining to you guys. It's better so, than the other. So the cent- So there are people who want right now. You, 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 and I cannot own central bank digital currency. You have to be a bank to have an account at the Federal Reserve. Okay. So you and I cannot put money in a cannot deposit our dollars in a Federal Reserve district bank. We're not allowed to. Okay. Only insured depository institutions. And like Freddie and Fannie and some broker dealers, some very specialized institutions are allowed to have master accounts at the Fed. And okay. 
the crypto firms want to have master accounts at the Fed, and there's a big debate going on a lot because the Fed's not giving them. So all the crypto firms who are taking in all these dollars who want to tell you it's great to trade with their crypto, they want access to the Federal Reserve Banking oh, yeah, System through a master account. Right. But the Fed hasn't given anybody that yet. And they're being the Fed's being sued. The Kansas City Fed's in a lawsuit right now with one of the crypto banks. So you hope banks. they win that one. I don't know where I am on this one. I don't – I'm not sure. The Fed issued – some preliminary points for discussion about the things that ought to happen for somebody to be able to get a master account at the Fed. And they did that last September, and I'm not sure they've come to a final agreement on that. But they know they're being sued. They're under all this pressure. There was another case, the Narrow Bank, which we had events on that here, which is another interesting case. We could talk about that too, but maybe that's that's kind of like central bank digital currency. Yes. Okay, so but let me go back to central bank digital currency. A lot of people there are, there are central banks in the world that want to issue digital currency in part to compete against these private stable coins, which they don't like. Yeah. And they, so they would maybe in theory replace them. There are people in Congress who are trying to make the Fed issue mm-hmm. central bank digital currency to the public. One, they might think that uh, it will keep the dollar in its, in its international status as the, as the reserve currency of choice yeah. because if China issues one first, maybe people use yeah, the Chinese yeah. digital coin, right. all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Or the UK, maybe they'll switch. That may or may not be an issue. But there are also people in Congress who, if the Fed does issue digital currency, may put, may put uh, like Jared Brown in 2020 introduced a bill where the Federal Reserve Banks were required, that would, would have required the Fed to district banks to issue accounts to everybody, to any retail customer. And they were going to be full service checking accounts, ATM access, transfers, ACH transfers, yeah, bank, yeah, bank, yeah. Bank, free. And you could, anybody could have this account at the Fed free because he was going to help, you know, the underbanked yeah. by mm-hmm. making the Fed issue all these accounts free. So there are people who want to issue central bank digital currencies for some reasons, some to, to stamp out private stable coins, some to keep the the power of the of, of the dollar as a digital currency. There's others who want to use them for to, to, uh, social justice, social justice so, yeah, or social right, welfare right, programs. Right, right, so right. there's there's all kinds of features. Now, why am I against central bank digital currency? Because you could do exactly the same thing if you tokenized your checking account at the bank. So if it if you had a checking account and you want to pay somebody, you could do it the normal way. You could go to your bank, pay, bill, pay, and yeah. do it that way. You could write a check. Or there's nothing stopping banks from taking the dollars in your check and turning them into tokenized dollars and then trading them over a, a blockchain network, just yeah. like just like private stable coins do. So if you want a safe dollar deposit to be tradable over a public blockchain, I say the Fed doesn't have to issue a central bank digital currency. Tell the banks to develop the, the payments network, blockchain payments network, so you can digitally tokenize your checking account, just like a private stablecoin. And it would be insured by the FDIC. We have all the regulations in place. You don't have this issue. One of the issues with central bank digital currency is the Fed can't default. Now, if you have your money in a bank mm-hmm. and you're a big corporation, you've got to meet payroll. So you've got millions of dollars in the bank and something happens. There's a financial crisis and you don't know if your bank's going to fail or not. Will you move all that payroll money into the central bank digital currency. You take it out of the banking system. It's a bank run. You cause a bank run if you have central bank digital yeah, currency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so now ways they say, well, you can limit how much they could transfer. You could do stuff like that. But if you never create the central bank digital currency, you just tokenize dollar checking accounts in the, in the banks and you create that system, there's nowhere to run to. You're still in the banks. Okay. I, I think it makes a whole lot more sense. Now, 
Listeners, you heard this here. Mm-hmm. Paul Kubiak has got the answer. <laughs> I'm now trusting the private you, Paul. stable coins. I trust you. The private stable coins would not would probably not like this. Okay, even though even if, even though if private stable coins could also clear and settle on this the same Fed network, the private stablecoin issuers, there are different networks. Okay, bit like the blockchain that Bitcoin trades on can only trade Bitcoin. There are other coins in existence where the blockchain can do other things called smart contracts. And here's one of my examples I use. What's a smart contract? Well, it's, it's this, have you heard of the web 3.0? You probably have web, no, no. web 3.0. Yeah. You're on top of that. I'm so the web, the web 3.0 is the next, the next version of the internet. And in the, in web 3.0, all kinds of things in your house are going to be connected to your internet, not just your ring doorbell or your toaster, nest, your refrigerator, yeah. Yeah, your yeah. toaster and your refrigerator you're going to be able to tell your refrigerator, uh, it's going to be able to optimally scan what's in what's in there, and you're going to give it a list of when it gets when I need, always need this much ketchup, this much mustard, this much milk, and when it's low, it'll send an email to your grocer, and it'll order it and it'll show up at your door, uh, and um, you don't have to go to the grocery store, but you have to pay with something. Mm-hmm. Okay, right now the banking payment system, for some reason, doesn't seem to doesn't seem to jive with that with that notion or it's the people that write smart contracts in Silicon Valley or wherever they are that, that don't want to go that way. They want, they want to pay with stable coins and digital smart contracts or smart contracts can be other things like it can, it can do like a, a bank letter of credit or, or that. So, so say you're doing a, a deal with you're buying some furniture from somebody in Spain. Now, normally you wouldn't just pay for it before it gets shipped. You'd have an intermediary, uh, you know, release them money once it was loaded on on board the ship. They would look at the furniture and make sure it was on the ship, and then your bank or an intermediary. So we, we use banks and intermediaries for for things like that, where they've got a, a an agent over there. They said, okay, the cargo's you know free on board the ship. You can you, you release the funds and 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 that you could have a smart contract do that, where there's some you wouldn't have to use a bank, you wouldn't have to pay a bank. Uh, you would have a contract that's out there on the internet and it executes when somebody uh, puts you know, puts in the right token that says the stuff's free on board and it just executes over the internet. That would be a smart contract. So there's this whole bunch of people that believe smart contracts are the wave of the future. I say it's like the moment in The Graduate where they take Dustin Hoffman out, yeah, outside. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's plastics. It's, it's not plastics anymore. I'm going to tell you Robert, one word. It's, it's two words. Smart contracts. Smart contracts are yeah. the wave of the future. Hmm. So a lot of people think that and and they think that you need the blockchain ledger to do smart contracts. Now, I don't I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know why you couldn't use a debit or a credit card or that or that system couldn't work so to let your refrigerator order your groceries. Maybe it could. So I, in summarizing all of this There's on this there. topic yeah. is caveat emptor. Buyer beware. I, that's, you're, you're very cautious. You just watch this carefully. There's so much going on. It's a wild west out there. There's a wild west. Mm-hmm. It yeah. is a wild west. And there are pieces of the private crypto world that look like securities. There are pieces that look like money transfer agents, like, uh, you know, PayPal's a money transfer agent. So, and those that, that act like that probably should be regulated like that. And then there's other parts of the crypto world that just do crazy things that you ought to just stamp something across that this is, this is, this is not a condoned activity. <laughs> yeah, okay. You're doing this at your own risk. We're not, you know, don't, you're not getting bailed out if you lose your shirt. Here. Uh, yeah. And here's a pack of cigarettes to have while you're, <laughs> while you're, while you're doing that. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right. With that cautionary note, Paul, it's been great to have you listeners. I hope you've enjoyed this little quick run through the financial sector. 
of our economy. Paul, uh, thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you so much. It was it was fun. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'll be taking a few weeks off this August, but tune in again in September for more great episodes featuring AEI scholars.